Hello there, nasty pasty listeners. It's the one and only Andrew Roberts here. Welcome to the final episode of the Nasty Pasty podcast. Yes, it's finally here, and it's a rather emotional time. In about August of 2017, I suddenly just had this mad idea to start a podcast. A lot of my Twitter friends were also doing one. I loved horror films, and I felt I could probably have fun with the medium as well. At the same time, I started a passion project, which was a huge coffee table style book that would cover the video nasty era. But quite honestly, at the time that I started this, I was stuck in a rut and I was barely watching films at all. It seemed an impossible task to actually begin watching films again and write about them. So, Nasty Pasty was born out of that wish to get back into actually watching dodgy films and writing about them critically. At first, I tried to continue work on my book as well, but I burnt out very quickly after about my fourth episode, so I decided to focus solely on the podcast, and it was quite a tough decision to make, but I needed it massively, and being here today on the final episode, I don't regret it at all. Nasty Pasty has covered almost every horror film genre going, such as slashes, supernatural, possession, home invasion, rape and revenge, serial killers, giallo, body horror, and even other avenues of exploitative violence, like black exploitation, women in prison, action films, post-apocalypse, etc., etc. It's been an extraordinary experience, I've met loads of new friends along the way, been supported wonderfully by everyone in my life, and I'm honestly fighting back the emotion right now, as I can't quite believe that I've finally got to the end of this list. As much as I've loved it though, it is time to say goodbye. There's a whole other project that's been pleading for my attention, and that's my book. Apart from this podcast, it's the only personal project that I've been able to maintain with the same fiery passion as when I came up with the idea. So, unfortunately, it is time for me to hang up the recording apparatus once and for all. I mean, maybe that's a little too permanent. I may at one point return to podcasting, but it really won't be for a long time. I'm certainly up for appearing on any of my friends' podcasts if you have an extra seat to spare on occasion, and the Nasty Pasty page will still be feeding updates, mainly about my upcoming releases or news about the book. So it's not goodbye forever, but Nasty Pasty won't be continuing in the same way. Now that some of the mushy stuff is over with, let's get into the driving seat again for the last time. You should know the drill really by now. Nasty Pasty specifically targets films from the era of the video Nasty, a time in 1980s Britain where instead of immigrants taking our jobs, unelected bureaucrats running our country and the demonisation of everyone except the white cis heterosexual person, the country instead focused on supernaturally possessed VHS tapes who by their very existence threatened to harm our society on a grand scale containing evil imagery such as gross depictions of mutilation, cannibalism, sexual violence, animal attacks and cruelty, gore, sex, bad language and children in peril, these so-called video nasties became the scapegoat for every single negative aspect of British society. As is the usual reaction when the UK's faced with social problems, they whipped up a fake controversy fed by populist newspapers, right-wing personalities and clueless MPs who lived in a completely bygone era. The three-headed beast proved to be a formidable foe, with anyone disagreeing being branded as an evil pervert. And eventually Parliament passed a law that outlawed any video release that wasn't sanctioned by the government's chosen body the British Board of Film Classification, or the BBFC. Since then, all of our entertainment has been filtered through this official body, and for a long time, our horror films, and by extension, any films that contained any contentious material, were censored with impunity. 
It wasn't until the figurehead behind this organisation, the infamous James Furman, was removed that the UK film classification became relaxed massively. We still have the occasional cuts here and there, for example, still censoring barbaric animal cruelty, anything concerning children and sex together, suicide images or eroticised sexual violence. Most of these are because of other laws that bypass the Video Recordings Act, so we're actually relatively liberal now. But unfortunately, there's still too many films floating around in butchered states, or without releases at all, due to our merciless past wars against violence on videotape. This podcast, while I love discussing the actual video nasty films, avoids those films to focus on the unsung heroes of that era, that probably should have been video nasties, but through circumstance, or just plain hypocrisy of the Director of Public Prosecutions, they weren't included on the banned lists. We're now on the final episode, and the last in our final four extreme episodes, covering films with significantly amplified obscenity, violence and themes altogether. After necrophilia, Emmanuel films, and straight-up pornography, we're now on the final hurdle with two coprophagia films. Movies that have scenes in it where someone literally eats shit. Today's examples of this particularly foul act are 1975's Sarlo, The 120 Days of Sodom, from Pier Paolo Pasolini, and 1974's Wedding Trough, from Thierry Zeno. Both films have scenes of faecal consumption in them, but as this isn't really a feature-length theme that can be pulled off that successfully, these films are of course about many other things as well. Before we go into our last two films, I'm just going to give you one last lecture on today's theme, so... Let's talk about eating poop. Coprophagia comes from two Greek words in origin, kopros, which means faeces, and phagian, which means to eat. Whilst there's several instances in which a human may engage in such behaviour, it's usually divided into two main reasons. One is due to some sort of mental impairment, such as illness or coercion, or intoxication, for example, while another is purely for sexual gratification, something that's more commonly known as coprophilia. This behaviour is not just observed in humans, but the animal kingdom as well, though for much more essential reasonings. For example, rabbits and hares often consume their own faeces, as their digestive system allows them to reabsorb vital nutrients from it, though this is only with certain pellets of faeces that contain them. A lot of insects, particularly flies, have quite a symbiotic relationship with eating faeces as part of their usual nutrition and reproduction cycle, while elephants and hippos, when they're young, will actually ingest the faecal matter of their seniors in order to obtain invaluable bacteria to begin digesting their own food, since their digestive systems are actually sterile when they're born. To a lesser extent, plants also tend to thrive when absorbing faecal matter in the form of fertiliser, but some plants that actually digest food directly, like pitcher plants, also gain a benefit from eating poop. Now that you're an expert on dingleberry nibbling, let's drop the kids off at the pool and get straight into the first film this week, Sarlo, The 120 Days of Sodom.
During the Nazi fascist era of 1940s Italy in the Republic of Salo, four powerful men, including a duke, his brother the bishop, a president and a magistrate, sign a binding document where they muse all good things must be carried out in excess. Shortly after, Nazi soldiers seemingly escort a variety of young men to a mansion where they don uniforms and brazenly spit at and hustle a small group of girls into another room. There, the men from before announce that the girls are each of their daughters, Tatiana, Susie, Liana and Juliana, whom they're going to marry to strengthen the bonds between them. They're shortly brought before a large group of kidnapped young men, whom they check out to see how large their penises are. They select two, Sergio and Franco, before moving on to another group of boys and selecting those that they wish to deflower, whilst equally select girls are chosen from large groups of kidnapped girls. Nine boys and nine girls are ultimately chosen and all are transported to a large opulent mansion, where they're told that they are present only for the exclusive pleasure of the four men. Four older women have joined them for the express act of narrating stories to stir passion in the four men who can then proceed to act out any sexual or violent act as they deem fit. Further, any sexual acts committed by the victims with each other is punished with the loss of a limb, whilst any religious acts are to be punished with death. They're herded inside and later that evening, the first gathering happens, where all of the victims and their captors congregate and tell the first narratives. Miss Vicari recounts a moment when she was seven when she was forced to masturbate a professor at a boarding school, though the magistrate complains that it's lacking in detail. Delighting in expanding on the story, she then describes an encounter where she was forced to urinate for another man's pleasure, causing the bishop to take one of the male victims out to abuse. When he tries to pull away, the boy is punished. As Vicari continues, the magistrate has one of the boys masturbate him, while shortly afterwards at dinner, the girls are forced to serve the dinner naked. One of the soldiers, a physio, purposely trips one of the girls and rapes her as she struggles on the floor, causing the president to excitedly flash his naked bottom at all the males in the room before insisting that a physio penetrate him as well. The Duke leads a round of singing, while Miss Vicari tries to teach the girls how to wank off a penis. When one of the girls is humiliated for her paltry efforts, she has her throat slit and is left for dead, while Vicari recounts another tale of when a man anally penetrated her. Whipped into a frenzy about which orifice gains the most pleasure, Vicari and one of the studs are prodded to determine which body parts give them the most pleasure. When Sergio and one of the girls, Renata, simultaneously orgasm, they're forced into a marriage, where the Duke fondles all of the wedding guests, both male and female. After the wedding is concluded, everyone is banished from the room except for a guard, the four men and the new couple, who are forced to consummate their marriage in front of them. When they only get to kissing, the president begins to have sex with Sergio while the Duke molests Renata while being penetrated from behind by the magistrate. After talking about Baudelaire and Nietzsche, Vicari recounts a tale when she was forced to act like a dog for a man, which inspires the bishop to make a girl urinate in front of him. All of the victims are subsequently stripped and then forced to act like dogs, barking and begging for scraps from a dog bowl. One of the boys, Lamberto, that refuses to eat is whipped mercilessly, whilst Susie is tricked into eating a cake that has nails hidden inside it cutting open her gums. That night when the pianist plays a melody, the Duke takes a particular shine to Reno, who reciprocates the Duke's advances, while Antoniska, one of the girls, tells a fellow victim, Eva, that she cannot take it anymore. 
Vakari finishes off her stories with one about a minister who was aroused by tearing her clothes off and dashing them into a fire, ejaculating into the said fire. The narrative responsibility then goes to Miss Maggi, who tells a tale of an army general who delighted in wearing nappies and having her defecate all over him, having consumed laxatives and then feeding him the excrement. She continues mentioning that she murdered her mother when she tried to stop her perversions, inspiring Renata to cry at the loss of her own mother. The Duke punishes her, especially as she mentions God, by forcing her to eat a piece of faeces that he dumps on the floor. Miss Maggi rebukes the girl for her reluctance, moving on to the story of a man who only consumed the faeces of elderly women. Inspired by the stories, the president decides to have the victims forbidden to defecate until they want to, punishing one of the girls, Doris, when she violates this rule, as well as one of the boys, Carlo. Later, Sergio is dressed in a wedding dress at dinner to marry the bishop, while all the naked female victims bring out a meal completely made from feces, which they're all forced to eat. Afterwards, the bishop takes Sergio upstairs to consummate their marriage, while Miss Maggi recounts the tale of a dying man who wished to die whilst kissing an arsehole. The duke gets excited and forces one of the victims to urinate on his face, while a story recounted about the best ass forces the men to search all the victims for the best rear end. Franco is chosen as having the best behind, and as a reward, he'll be killed instantly, though they delay his death for later. Miss Maggi finishes her tales with one about a man who only ate the feces of women who were sentenced to death, as to him, shit excreted at this time of horror tasted the best. The four men except the bishop then dress garishly in women's clothing and jewellery for a ritualistic wedding, shouting at all of the guests to have fun and rejoice. Miss Vicari and the pianist begin to act out a little play to make the victims laugh. The ceremony then begins with the Duke, the President and the Magistrate all betrothed to the studs, while later the Bishop is sodomised by his choice of man. When the Bishop later goes into the boy's dorm, one of the boys, Claudio, betrays one of the girls called Graziella, who has a photo hidden under her pillow. She then reveals an affair between Ava and Antonisca, who in return reveal that one of the soldiers, called Ezio, is having sex with one of the house's servant girls. When caught, the four men shoot Ezio dead and the servant girl as well, whilst in the morning, where everyone who has ever transgressed is forced to wear a blue ribbon. All of those who don't can collaborate with the four men and be spared, just before Miss Castelli relates the final set of stories. She tells of a rich man with a large penis who has 15 girls whom he forces to be naked and defecate in his mouth. He then brands them with a number and systematically kicks them out of a window and into a cellar, where an executioner tortures them for the man's pleasure, including a razor-bladed wheel, feet being burnt in an oven, a live rat being sewn into a vagina, etc. etc. Some of the victims are by this point imprisoned in or near a vat of faecal matter, and sometime later all of them are removed into the courtyard outside where the bishop, magistrate and president, one by one, murder them in gruesome fashion as the duke watches from his bedroom. Tonino has his penis burnt off by a large lighter, whilst Renata has her both breasts burnt off. Inside, the pianist solemnly goes to a window, and after witnessing the carnage unfolding outside, she commits suicide, while Franco has his tongue cut out. Juliana is raped by the guards and is then hung to death, while the Duke swaps with the President for voyeur duty. The President then watches as Carlo has his eyes gouged out, and Fatima is raped before she's scalped. 
The magistrate then watches as the bishop furiously whips the remaining victims to death, with Sergio being branded several times with a red-hot poker. Inside, two of the soldiers put on a jazz tune and begin to dance together as the film ends. I was born at a boarding school for young ladies. My mother worked there as a servant. One day, my older sister asked me if I knew Professor Gentile. I said I didn't. Well, he's waiting for you outside. He has noticed you. And he wants you to look at something nice. He's already showed it to me. Now, you listen closely. Don't run away, you little fool. If you let him do what he wants, he'll give you money. I needed no urging, so I ran out to meet Professor Gentile. I couldn't believe what my sister had told me. He stopped me and asked whether I was busy. I said I had to put back the chairs. Don't bother, let your sister do it, because I have something most unusual I want to show you, the like of which you've never seen before. I followed him into a room, and he closed the door. Good girl, he said. And then he withdrew a huge penis from his trousers. Tell me, he said as he masturbated, have you ever in your life seen such a penis? I have exposed it to your sister as well as to all the pretty little girls here. Then he took my hand and said, do it. Let your nimble fingers stimulate the seed which produced us all. Go on, for I like to shoot into girls' faces. When it comes splashing out on a girl's cheek, that's my only joy. And you're going to provide me that rapture. At that moment, a great jet shot out. A white substance splashed into my eyes, completely drenching me, soaking me from head to toe. My frock was covered with sperm. One moment, Signora Baccari. It is essential that all the details be described to us, lacking those you cannot expect us to be excited and aroused by your stories, which is what we want them to do. That is the only reason for having you tell them. My dear sir, I am well aware of how important it is to tell the smallest details, omitting no point that could serve to arouse or excite you. And you wish us to pay particular attention to those elements of our stories that depict human nature or some special aspect of sensual indulgence or sheer lust. So I've tried to relate all the details you required. Well, try to amplify. For example, you have not reported any details on the size of the penis of this Professor Gentile, nor have you told about the nature of his emission, its consistency. Did he play with your bosom or put his hand on your genitals? Or did you caress him in any unusual manner? To summarize, dear Signora Baccari, remember to tell the details. I will be more thorough. I promise you that from now on I will conceal nothing. Now, shall I go on? One moment. Salo is rather infamous amongst purveyors of controversial cinema, and after you've seen it, you'll pretty much understand why that is. Quite an unflinching coarse exercise in depravity, corruption, sexual nastiness, and visceral violence... Pier Paolo Pasolini's film rather deserves its reputation as an epically extreme film. While it's pretty reviled by large swathes of people, critically and artistically speaking, the film is not quite a grotty piece of exploitative filmmaking. Quite the opposite, in fact, as the film's technical prowess and cinematic beauty rather belies the malevolent and sinister proceedings in the plot. Part of the reason that this film has endured is because of the boundless skill at which the film has been put together, which is only helped by the stunning restorations and the modern releases that contemporaneous audiences can now enjoy. To understand the film a little bit better, though, we'd have to go back a little and speak about the Marquis de Sade. Born in 1740, Donatien Alphonse Francois, a.k.a. the Marquis de Sade, 
was an infamous nobleman and politician who in his public life was fairly blasé and almost wanton about his sexual shenanigans. He was an advocate of the libertine lifestyle, unrestrained by societal limitations and free to pursue hedonistic interests. He was quite the spoiled child, being waited on hand and foot with servants due to his family's wealthy status. He was eventually sent to a Jesuit college in his early teens, where he was subjected to corporal punishment, which historians allege stayed with him for the majority of his life. As he entered adulthood, he began to indulge in very questionable behaviours of a sexual nature. While not exhaustive, he began an affair with his aunt, he bought countless prostitutes of both sexes, he seduced his servants in his castle, and in one particularly notorious incident, he lured a beggar woman into his home to work as a maid, before forcibly stripping her and tying her to his bed, whipping her for his own pleasure. Dessard's family paid the maid off to keep the family away from any embarrassment, but he subsequently hired four prostitutes and drugged them with Spanish fly, engaging in lewd sexual acts with them as well as with his manservant. A warrant for the manservant and Dessard was issued for the death penalty for charges of sodomy, but Dessard escaped arrest and fled to Italy where his tastes became ever more criminal imprisoning six children in his chateau with his wife, where he began to abuse them all. On the run once more, Dessard eventually travelled to France upon hearing that his mother was ill, but upon arrival he was arrested, learning that his mother was in fact dead and the news was just a ruse to lure him to his arrest. He was imprisoned in 1777 in various locations such as the Bastille, and he wrote the majority of his works whilst incarcerated, most notably the 120 Days of Sodom. His manuscript for this was hidden behind his cell wall, and he was separated when he was moved to an insane asylum, though the manuscript was later retrieved and survived. Due to this rush, however, the 120 Days of Sodom was never formally completed, as the latter half of the book is written in note form. Finally, after 23 years in prison, Dessard's death sentence was abolished and his wife was granted divorce from him, meaning Dessard was free as of 1790. He seemed to settle down with a lover, Marie Constance Kesney, and began to continue writing his erotic novels, though he would encounter trouble for his far-left political leanings, imprisoned from 1793 to 1794 for being critical of the 1793 Reign of Terror. By 1796 he had to sell his castle due to crippling debt, though he continued to write books. By the turn of the 19th century, Dessard was imprisoned without trial for being the author of Justine and Juliet, and by 1803 he was declared legally insane and transferred to an asylum again. He was forbidden to own, own any pens or paper, and eventually his treatment was also stopped, leaving him to languish. His horrible behaviours began to surface again, trying to seduce younger inmates and then successfully starting a relationship with a 14-year-old girl, until he finally passed away in 1814. His legacy is a rather controversial one. While his works are deemed to be culturally significant and worthy of praise, his criminal and immoral antics, as both a rapist and a paedophile, continue to follow any critical thinking about him. Even the word sadism is named after him, meaning an enjoyment of the infliction of pain, suffering or humiliation of another. Sexual sadism is much closer in tone to Dessard's actual behaviour, with sexual arousal being gleaned from non-consensually hurting or abusing another. Like a lot of extremely influential public figures, Dessard has these much darker elements in addition to the more positive influences that his work has had on future generations. 
like directors Brian Singer and Victor Salva, pop star Michael Jackson, or even the author Lewis Carroll. Dassard's legacy and artistic merits are rather marred by the real-life behaviours he indulged in, which I personally am finding is a bit of a recurring theme in the entertainment world of late. Rather than completely dismiss their works, however, I believe it's absolutely fine to find something of merit in someone's artistic endeavours without condoning their actions elsewhere. Dassard was an absolutely reprehensible person who was dangerous and sexually predatory to those around him. And at the same time, his literature was groundbreaking in terms of complete rejection of religious morals, questioning the status-driven aristocratic world that surrounded him since birth, and introducing early precursors of nihilism and existentialism. The work that Sarlo is based on was Dassard's manuscript, The 120 Days of Sodom, which was written in just 37 days, whilst the Libertine was imprisoned in the Bastille. It was only published for the first time almost a century after Dassard's demise, in 1904 by a German psychiatrist. The book focuses on the exploits of four acquaintances, a duke, a bishop, a judge and a banker, in the midst of Louis XIV's reign in France, who lived the life of the libertine wholly and absolutely, proving their power by retreating to a castle with four middle-aged prostitutes, eight studs, also known as fuckers, specifically chosen for having large members, their four daughters, eight boys and eight girls, ranging from age 12 to 15, chosen for their beauty and virginal status, and finally, four ugly women, who are chosen to stand in contrast to the beauty of all of them. For four months, the four prostitutes relay five stories a day, roughly 150 stories every month, which would arouse the curiosity of the men, who then systematically act out their inspired fantasies on their victims. In November, the women tell of simple passions, those which lack sexual penetration, like various forms of masturbating, sexual fetishes and peculiar paraphilias, involving scaring women, tearing their clothes off, or just eating poo and drinking wee. December stories are much more complex, describing more abusive and penetrative acts, like incest, blasphemous penetrations with crucifixes, sex during mass, and also whippings. January stories ramp up in extremity, describing much more violent sexual behaviour, such as pedophilia, branding women with pokers, pouring molten pitch into their anuses, verbally and physically abusing women until they suffer miscarriages, or just plain mutilating women by tearing their skin and fingers off. Finally, in February, the stories begin to talk of purely murderous acts, such as the flaying of children, infanticide in front of grieving mothers, mass murder and the mutilation of pregnant women. During these stories, and as time goes on, the victims are subjected to all manner of abusive acts from the libertines, like whippings, physical and verbal abuse, humiliation and subsequently turning into vaginal and anal rape of all of them. By the time February arrives, the Libertines indulge in murder themselves on a rampant scale, pretty much brutally slaughtering their kidnapped victims in as gratuitous a fashion as possible. If it's possible to imagine, the book is far more explicit, even more supercharged in its perverse sexuality and violence, and is a lot less stylishly portrayed. As an example, one of the girl's deaths in the book involves the men flaying her arms and legs... Using a scalpel to gouge into her abdomen, they sever her anal canal and vagina, rewiring the two to mockingly force her to defecate from her genitals, before slicing open her abdomen completely, removing her bowels, and then setting them alight and watching as she torturously expires. 
And this, ladies and gents, is not even the most extreme moment in the book. The film, by comparison, is relatively mild, and it's hard to imagine that a cinematic experience could faithfully recreate the orgiastic crescendo that the book agonisingly builds up to. Thankfully, while it doesn't try to topple the extremes of the novel, none of that power to repel and shock is lost, as the utter hopelessness and sheer terror of the whole situation is intact in Pasolini's vision. He chose to eschew the original setting of 18th century France to the Nazi-era regime of Benito Mussolini in the small republic state of Salo. Salo is a town in northern Italy, where Mussolini's fascist government once based their operations until 1945, when the regime fell. Director Pier Paolo Pasolini's brother was killed there in real life, which makes that location especially resonant in his mind. He also changed a few details here and there, such as removing the ugly old women completely and repurposing the studs as victims themselves, replacing them somewhat with a set of collaborating guardsmen who also take their turn in abusing the victims. The number of women recounting the stories is reduced to three, and the structure of the stories as well is configured to be named after Circles, to fit in with references to Dante Alighieri's Inferno which is a story about a man who explores the circles of hell. The ages of the victims are increased slightly to exclude anyone of pure minor age, though the characters are all clearly still meant to be children, played by adult actors obviously. The victims in the film are also heavily de-emphasised in terms of their character development, in contrast to the book where each victim's past was explored to a degree. The four libertines are also tweaked slightly, but in essence they retain the similar characteristics and idiosyncrasies of their novel version. Before we get onto the story, we'll talk a little bit about how this film was made. Sergio City, one of the writers, was attached in the early 70s to direct a film adaptation of The 120 Days of Sodom. As he was a frequent collaborator with Pasolini, they decided to band together and work on it. Over time, Pasolini eventually took over the role as director, since City wanted to write another project straight after the conclusion on this film, so he allowed Pasolini some licence with the script, which facilitated the relocation of the action to Sarlo, and then added the references to Dante's Inferno. The reduced emphasis on the female and male victims of the film's anti-heroes was purposeful, which Pasolini explained was to make it easier to view them as mere objects of abuse and a form of property of the antagonists. The action was filmed in Villa Sora near Castelfranco Emilia for the interior of the mansion, while the exteriors of the mansion were actually near Villa Aldini in the hills of Bologna. Ironically, none of the scenes were actually filmed in Salo in the region of Lombardy. Instead, the beginning scenes were shot in Gardaletta in Marzaboto, while other scenes, such as the mansion courtyard, were being filmed in Cinecity Studios. Oddly, Helene Sauger, who played Miss Vicari, said that the mood was very jovial on set, and that none of the cast members were actually harmed or traumatised. To the contrary, the younger cast members kept the set quite lively with practical jokes on each other and displays of playful immaturity. Up to 40 actors could be on set at once, which was almost unheard of at the time, and during breaks, the cast and crew would share large meals with each other and participate in socialising and games with the nearby film crew who were there for a Bernardo Bertolucci film. Helene Sauger also explained that the film didn't seem that horrendous when they were filming it, and it was only after the film was edited and shown at the premiere that they realised just how dark and sinister this material was. 
the film's scenes of coprophagia obviously didn't use actual human waste. Instead, the faecal matter in the film was a mixture of chocolate and orange marmalade, making it incredibly sweet and tart. The reactions of the victims in the film were then partially genuine, as the mixture was unbearably rich and very hard to eat. The younger actors also encountered some slight issues with filming their demises in the film's conclusion, as the abrasive gravel caused minor injuries when they were forced to stay in the same position during the shoot, while the working with flames led to some minor burn injuries being suffered by some of the actors. It was also a particularly long shoot, with Pasolini apparently acquiring enormous amounts of usable footage, which probably didn't help when it came to ending the film, as Pasolini was so undecided about how to end it that he shot no less than four different endings altogether. He eventually settled on the ending of the two collaborating soldiers dancing, but one alternative ending showed simply a flag with the words Love You emblazoned on it. Another had a rather raucous dance being performed by the four men and their collaborators draped amongst red flags, whilst another had the men simply leaving the mansion and trying to sum up all that they've learned from their experiment. Not only did this footage not get included, but there were some other scenes that were shot that didn't make it into the final product, such as a girl being tortured by rats who were tied to her waist, one of the girls being killed via an electric chair in the film's finale, and all of the victims' bodies being arranged in rows by the time of the film's end. Rather more sinister on set, however, was the theft of some of the film's reels, which were followed shortly by a ransom note for the return of the footage. Pasolini simply ignored this and reshot the missing footage using doubles and from a different perspective. While the film was being completed in the editing room, and shortly before the film was due to be released, Pasolini was murdered in mysterious circumstances. It was initially thought to be by a 17-year-old youth, Giuseppe Pelosi, who apparently got into an argument with him before stealing his car and running him over several times. Pelosi was convicted, but later retracted his statement of guilt, saying that three unknown men were the perpetrators. At his murder trial, the incident of the missing film reels was pinned on Pelosi as a means to lure Pasolini to his location, but regardless of what actually happened, Pasolini's death will forever be shrouded in an air of mystery. Back to the film, though, which, from the outset, is a remarkably crisp, haunting and aesthetically beautiful piece of filmmaking. Like a lot of the more disturbing character study slashers of the late 70s and 80s, our focus, at all times, is on the very perpetrators of abuse and violence, and we get to know them almost exclusively throughout the film, while the various victims and perfunctory collaborators are almost entirely uncharacterised, with only a few exceptions. The men are clearly libertines and hedonistic right from the get-go, describing that anything good must be carried through in excess, you know, passionately or not at all. They select their victims carefully and have a disturbing, unflinchingly jovial reaction to the selection process, as they muse about the sort of perversions and abuse that they wish to inflict upon them. In a particularly nasty section, the magistrate rebukes the pleadings from help from one of the boy victims, instead delighting in informing him that the magistrate himself has watched and waited for months, now relishing in the fact that he can deflower the boy, which he's been effectively perving on for ages. This utter abandon without any restraint on what you can express, think and execute with regard to sexual predilections is quite chilling to see, especially because it's been done without any cheese. 
you almost nervously laugh a little because of how threateningly honest the things that these men spout. But it's pretty representative of the film's treatment of absolute power and the corruption that entails. These men are going to do what they want, and whether you want it or not. The film's tone is rather helpless from the very get-go, as the victims have no chance of escape, as everyone involved is in on the kidnap and abuse. This is sustained from the very beginning, and it's made abundantly clear that these victims were never going to survive this film. The victims are chosen for a variety of reasons, but one of the things that the men clearly stress is having attractive victims. Those who have those perfect sculpted forms, the pretty faces, the doe-like innocence, just waiting to be corrupted. Notably, one girl who's missing a tooth is rejected outright for this imperfection, as she's already considered corrupted to a degree, while all of the other considered flawless girls are sold in essence like chattel, with the older women showing off their features as though they were extras with an automobile. One in particular shows off with glee this delicious little rear end, as solid and bouncy as anyone could wish for, two little titties to make a dying cripple a lusty stallion again. It's this almost slave-like ignorance of the victim's human identity and emphasis on her features which is so disturbing. Though another female, Renata, is chosen specifically because she's crying, which in turn arouses the men as they thrive on this infliction of pain. More on that later, but the systematic and planned way in which the captors get their captured is rather haunting, especially as it truly feels like these men have an entire society behind them. They have soldiers to enforce their rules, gangs of thugs to seek out and kidnap their victims, and the resources available to sequester themselves off from the outside world to carry out the abuse. The rules which are dictated are also pretty harrowing to listen to, very emblematic of fascistic control, and there's a rather vacant expression on the victims' faces. Not only has it gone beyond terror or fear, but they've now completely given up hope, and rightly so. The victims get a rather depraved catalogue of obscenities aimed towards them, ranging from the more simple, non-consensual gropings, forced marriages and strippings, to the outright brutal, like forcing them to act and bay like dogs, forcing them to eat excrement, and eventually their violent rape and murder. The dichotomy of the flowery and poetic way in which the three ladies recount their stories, and the base, horrendous way in which the abuses are directed at the victims is probably one of the most uncomfortable elements in the whole film. The abuse is paid no attention, as though it were as harmless as someone scratching an itch, whilst the lady narrator is describing in an affluent, joyful way her delicate little twat and alabaster globes of her buttocks. The female storytellers themselves are also quite sinister figures, mostly because they're situated quite oddly within the arrangement of power. They don't have the control of the men in any other way other than their recounting of anecdotes, stirring them into action, but they do actively participate in some of the abuse themselves, as well as helping procure the victims at the beginning. At the same time, they're pushed around by the men when they get angry, and they're bound by a lesser form of restrictions that the children have. Another major aspect of the ladies' disturbing portrayal is that the majority of their tales are in relation to their own experiences, which in very certain terms are descriptions of their childhood sexual abuse. Instead of looking back on these experiences as the abusive acts that they are, however, they instead look fondly on them with cheerful aplomb. Miss Vacari, for example, recounts a moment when she was seven, in which an elderly professor masturbates and ejaculates onto her face. 
but instead of having disgusted sensibilities, she kind of looks on it as though it were an overwhelmingly positive sexual awakening of some kind. As an abuse survivor myself, it's hard for me to juxtapose this idea of having a favourable reaction to abuse, especially in retrospect. Understandably, seven-year-olds at the time would have little understanding or context of sexual activity, and they'd likely not feel any contemporaneous negativity about the experience. But upon getting older, and with more understanding of the dynamics of adult life, victims usually suffer mentally because they realise that the context was actually abusive rather than friendly. These women, however, have seemingly been indoctrinated into such an extreme libertine lifestyle from an early age that there's little to no negative appreciation of their life's events. For me, that's almost as disturbing as the abuse itself, that it's had such a corrupting effect on the victim. Such seems to be the power, however, of this nature of abuse. Even the men themselves demonstrate certain aspects of damaged moral compasses when they may have at one point some semblance of normal life. The Duke, for example, outright declares that he murdered his mother when she attempted to suppress his natural urges. It's hinted that he was just a teenager at this point, where these urges may have actually just been simple sexual desires that were being repressed by his mother's overbearing manner. The precise nature of this relationship is left ambiguous, but regardless, an act of matricide would obviously be a very affecting moment in your life, and the purposeful destruction of your mother is the rejection of everything that's considered natural. Blood ties, the connection to your birth, family values and morals instilled by parents all bloodily dashed in one fell swoop. Unrestrained now by his mother, it's really not surprising that everything is fair game for the Duke, but it is quite cold to hear his callous rejection of the idea of respecting your mother. He says, It is madness to suppose that one owes anything to one's mother. Should we be expected to show gratitude towards her just because she had some fun one night fucking? What she felt should be reward enough for her. This is essentially the pure essence of the fervent libertine, able to cast away any connection to the past in search of new sensations. Renata is understandably upset at the prospect of caring so little for your mother, as she was unlucky enough to witness her murder at the hands of her kidnappers. If anything, though, her tears at the very least inspire the Duke to harbour more contempt for her, and at most, it actually turns him on to see her so devastated. The men are also not averse to sexually abusing their charges seemingly at random, forcing them to urinate on them or give them hand jobs whenever the mood takes them. After a particularly scatological tale from Miss Maggie, they even forbid the ladies of the victims to defecate, and all at once they collect it in one foul mound and serve the meal of excrement as dinner one night, with the majority of the libertines savouring it as though it were a delicious delicacy, while the victims act with a revulsion, but nonetheless comply with what they're told. This scene in particular was supposed to represent junk food culture and the idea of consumerism gone too far, but since scenes like this were in the original novel, I'm a little unsure about how this would distinguish itself from the original intention of just showcasing perversity. A particularly foul anecdote has Miss Maggie recount how one man only ate the feces of old women, as it had a delicious putrescence about it. This film is certainly not for the squeamish in any sense of the word. The power of the four libertines is so that they even defy the idea of definable sexuality. While they never really refer to each other as gay, straight or bisexual, they engage in a wide variety of sexual acts with both genders, implying that they're either bisexual or pansexual. 
However, I don't think that this is necessarily the case. They were clearly married, or at least were courting women, as they all have daughters, so it seems natural that they were in heterosexual pairings. And considering the Nazi ideology on homosexuality as well, I doubt that they'd commit to such labels. So instead, they execute such power and command over their pursuit of pleasure that they destroy the concept of sexuality altogether. They simply pursue whatever sexual or perverse desire enters their mind, whether it's being buggered by a guard, having girls piss in their face, or dressing as a woman and marrying another male. Individually, the Duke is rather charismatic, as psychotic madmen can be, but clearly feels a little bit more like the ringleader than the others, though this seems more incidental rather than a comment on anything. He certainly seems to delight in the more murderous aspects of his power, and he has a strange relationship with Reno, one of the victims, who seems to actually reciprocate some of the feelings for the Duke. Instead of the relationship being pure abuse, it seems that Reno is at heart slightly masochistic as well, earning him the Duke's approval, and notably his survival of the film's events. The Bishop, while not exactly evoking religion, as obviously his name would suggest, seems to prefer boys, and is penetrated by his male groom after the wedding ceremony. He seems to thrive more on the scandalous nature of the victims, such as indulging their various acts of betrayal later, and instigating punishments on the victims when they disobey rules. The President is more of an exhibitionist, excitedly flashing when he wants to, and proffering his butt up when he wants to be penetrated. But he also enjoys trying to lighten the mood, if you can call it that, by telling jokes. He also seems to be rather obsessed with anal sex, and he refuses to engage in any other, claiming that homage to the rear temple is often more fervent than the other. Finally, there's the magistrate, who indulges in both abuse of girls and boys, but he likes to introduce more intellectual appraisals of their activities by using the works of Nietzsche and Baudelaire to justify the vile acts. Their mix of abusive activities, however, finally reaches a crescendo after the recounting of tales from Miss Castelli, where the fantasies become much more murderous. Genitals and breasts are singed off, agonisingly using lighters. Tongues are sliced off, branded using pokers, scalped, hung, having their eyes removed using knife blades. I mean, it's particularly difficult to watch, as there's rather classical music playing in tandem with the horrible events quite harshly contrasting and making their suffering that much worse. Such is the Italian way, though, of course. It's only really in these last few moments that the film gets graphically violent, but after an entire film's worth of sexual abuse, it still somehow feels as nasty as it sounds. Of course, the ending, too, doesn't bode exactly well, as the soldiers find something to grin about as they dance together while the victims perish outside. By the end of the film you end up feeling quite breathless from all of the depravity, which is, of course, a much more palpable feeling that most films leave with you. Overall, Sarlo is both affecting and effective, and even by today's standards, absolutely still has that power to shock. It's quite beautiful, despite its hauntingly sinister subject matter, powerful, despite its flowery and poetic structure and dialogue, and rather poignant and important despite the fact that it contains a lot of drinking piss, eating shit, and raping or killing everything in sight. It's ultimately a bit of a masterpiece. It's both ugly and perfect, gross and pretty, obscene yet essential. Quite infamously, Roger Ebert owned a copy of this film on Laserdisc, but he was reluctant to watch it due to the film's infamy and the graphic scenes. He died, unfortunately, before he could garner the strength to watch it. 
But lots of modern directors have positive messages towards the movie. French extreme director Gaspar Noé claims that it is one of his favourite films, as does Austrian director Michael Haneke and American director John Waters. It's certainly going to remain a part of my library forever, and I do urge everyone who hasn't seen it to go out and seek a copy as soon as you can. The lesson of ultimate power becoming absolute corruption is still extremely relevant to today's world, and very few films manage to evoke the sheer terror of such terrible control than this one. Paolo Bonicelli played the main anti-hero, the Duke. He reappeared in the very similar Caligula from Tinto Brass in 1979, as well as The Naked Son, Mission Impossible 3, and Dario Argento's Stendhal Syndrome. His brother, the Bishop, was played by Giorgio Cataldi, who's only appeared otherwise in the sex comedy The Best from 1976, while The Magistrate was played by Umberto Paolo Quintavalle, who was actually an author and chosen for his intellectual appearance. Then there was Aldo Valetti, who played the president, who'd appeared in the Jello picture, The Perfume of the Lady in Black, as well as the Nazi exploitation film Salon Kitty. Miss Castelli was played by Caterina Baratto, who'd been in her fair share of Italian genre films as well, like Danger Diabolique, Story of a Cloistered Nun, Footprints on the Moon, The House by the Edge of the Lake, and Phantom of Death. Miss Maggi was played by Elsa Di Giorgi, who'd mainly appeared in a lot of historical low-key Italian dramas, while French actress Helene Sauger played Miss Vicari, who'd been in 1970s The Strangler, Drugstore Romance, The Bronte Sisters, and 1980s Nightmare. Her co-star, Sonia Sauvange, who played the pianist, also joined her on The Strangler and Drugstore Romance. The various victims in the film, more often than not, are named for the actors' names, such as Sergio being played by Sergio Faschetti, or Claudio being played by Claudio Cicchetti. Most of these roles were the actors' sole credits, but there's a few exceptions, like Antonio Orlando, who played Tonino, and appeared in The Reign of Naples, The Sunday Woman, and 1982's The Good Soldier. Franco was played by Franco Merli, who was simply a gas station attendant when he was spotted by Pasolini for his movie Arabian Nights. He reappeared in Salo before going on to roles in The College Girl, Ugly Dirty and Bad, and 1979's Hypochondriac. Umberto was played by Umberto Cesari, later shied away from acting and instead became a gaffer on productions like Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, Robo War, Cop Game and Night Killer. The daughter, Juliana, was played by Juliana Mellis, who later popped up in Violence for Kicks and La Presidentessa in 1977, while Renata Moore, who unsurprisingly played Renata, had two other appearances, 1974's Giallo Poliziotteschi, What Have They Done to Your Daughters, and 1977's Nazi Love Camp 27. Eritrean actress Inez Pellegrini played the black servant girl, who'd also been in Pasolini's Arabian Nights, and Umberto Lenzi's very jolly giallo film, Eyeball. Lastly, there was Antoniska Nemour, who was a model prior to her casting in Salo. She subsequently appeared in The Young Bride, The Sister of Ursula, and the video nasty Gestapo's Last Orgy. Director Pier Paolo Pasolini was an accomplished writer and creative from a very early age, having published a variety of poems by the time he reached his 20s. He ventured into writing for the screen when he was 23 years old, with his first directorial role occurring in 1961 with Akatoni, based on his own novel. 
He remained a fairly controversial figure for most of his adult life, being a homosexual who lived in religiously heavy Italy, as well as openly expressing atheist and communist alignments. He was briefly in legal trouble after his involvement with 1963's Rogo Pagi, which was considered blasphemous, but he dabbled afterwards in much more personal expressions of cinema, with adaptations of The Canterbury Tales and The Arabian Nights, before doing edgy mashups of fascism and eroticism with 1968's Teorema and, of course, Sarlo, The 120 Days of Sodom. As mentioned before, Pasolini was mysteriously murdered after being run over with his own car. The car was found in possession of a 17-year-old who was convicted for Pasolini's murder after confessing. But in the mid-2000s, however, he later retracted this confession, explaining that the murder was in fact perpetrated by three men belonging to various political groups, in revenge for the director's filmography. Quite a tragic end, really, to someone so talented and daring. The film was written by Pupi Avati, who wrote the giallo picture The House of Laughing Windows, and 1983's Revenge of the Dead, which he also directed. He was assisted by Sergio Citti, who was Pasolini's assistant director of choice on Medea and The Canterbury Tales. The film was produced by three people, Alberto Grimaldi, who produced Last Tango in Paris, and also Gangs of New York. There was Alberto Di Stefanis, who was a production manager on The Killer with a Thousand Eyes, and The Killer Wore Gloves. And lastly, Antonio Girasanti, who equally was a production manager on stuff like Castle of the Living Dead, War Italian Style, and The Designated Victim. The ever-reliable Ornio Morricone composed the rather haunting melodic soundtrack, but he was very uncomfortable working on the film, as he found the themes quite disturbing, though he'd already agreed to score the film due to his friendship with Pasolini. The film's luscious cinematography was done by Tonino Deli Colli, famous for his work on The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, Once Upon a Time in America, Once Upon a Time in the West, and 1994's Death and the Maiden. Editing duty was on Nino Baragli, who worked with Deli Colli on the aforementioned films, with the exception of Death and the Maiden. In addition, Baragli also did the editing on 1966's Django, The Canterbury Tales, The Nun and the Devil, Tinto Brass's Caligula, and Luigi Cozzi's video nasty Contamination. He was assisted in the editing room by Ugo de Rossi from The Canterbury Tales and Arabian Nights, as well as Alfredo Mencini, who went on to the 1988 cannibal film Against Nature, or The Green Inferno. The makeup effects were done by a couple of people, first of which was Osvaldo Desideri, who worked as the set decorator on Sala as well. He wasn't really a makeup guy, having worked exclusively on decorating on various productions like The Night Porter and Beyond Good and Evil. Then there was Alfredo Tiberi, who worked on quite a recognisable mix of projects, like Umberto Lenzi's Eyeball, Black Emmanuel, White Emmanuel, Red Knights of the Gestapo, the movie adaptation of Popeye, Brian Yuzna's From Beyond, Ghoulies 2, The Godfather Part 3, and finally, Dario Argento's 2009 film, Giallo. Finally, Pasolini was assisted by two people in the direction of Sarlo, the first of which was Fiorella Infascelli, who later forged a directing career of her own on Italian television and some documentaries like Ferreri I Love You and Puni Chiusi in 2011. The other guy, Umberto Angelucci, worked in the same capacity with Pasolini on his other films like The Canterbury Tales and Arabian Nights, as well as Luigi Bazzoni's Footprints on the Moon. The film had not fared particularly well upon its release due to its heavily disturbing scenes of violence and sexual acts. 
In Italy, the censor board initially refused to pass the film uncut, but they eventually relented a month after their initial thoughts. However, the film was subsequently pulled three weeks after the release, and then it was officially banned. The film was relatively okay in the US, but it encountered problems in Canada, where certain copies were seized by overzealous police officers who found the material questionable. Australia outright banned it, but only passed it completely in 2010, under the condition that making of materials were included to prove its fictional status. The film is actually still therefore illegal to show or possess without this extra material. It was similarly banned in New Zealand as well, but it was passed uncut much earlier in 2001. In the UK, the film was rejected after being submitted in 1976 for reasons of gross indecency. Since the Obscene Publications Act wasn't being used against violent films, until the time of the video nasties anyway, gross indecency laws prevented the release of material that an ordinary decent man or woman would find to be shocking, disgusting and revolting. The only instance in which material could be passed is if all elements of indecency were cut. But James Furman, the head of the BBFC at the time, refused to cut the film, explaining that not only would it make the violence more normalised on screen, but it would also ruin the film's entire message of corrupted power being an ugly, shocking thing to witness. Instead, he suggested it could be shown at select cinema clubs without a BBFC certificate, so that audiences could see it as it was originally intended. However, police raids on these cinema clubs ended in the film being prosecuted and confiscated, forcing Furman to censor the print to make it acceptable for public showings. He ended up removing six minutes of footage, including the majority of the end murders, all instances of coprophagia and urine, and any references to homosexual behaviour. He also added in a four-minute prologue explaining the context of Sarlo, which was then passed for the intended cinema showings. After these initial select gatherings, however, the film was never submitted afterwards for general exhibition, and even throughout the nasty scare, the film remained unreleased. It was only passed uncut in 2000, whereby modern sensibilities lauded the efforts to portray all the violence as revolting rather than titillating. The same version from the BFI on Blu-ray is still available today, and the film is out there if you want to be brave enough to try. Well, that was probably the longest one that I've spoken about ever. Let's waste no more time and get into our final film, Wedding Trough. There's actually no dialogue in this movie, though, so our final bookends will actually be musical numbers.
A young man awakens on a farm and, taking a pigeon out of its cage, begins oddly testing what it would look like with a dismembered doll's head on it. He then tries this with another one before setting them both free. Seemingly alone on the farm, the farmer takes more than a gleaning interest in a sow in the yard, following it around and sensually touching its underbelly while he goes about his pastoral chores. After a game of blind man's bluff with the sow and several ducks in the yard, the farmer follows the sow into the barn and strips off, clearly hoping for some sexual interaction with it, but it fails to reciprocate. Feeling dejected, he sorts through some chicken litter before slitting the throat of one of his chickens and leaving it to bleed out in its cage. He collects some faecal matter from the chicken litter in a jar before placing it into a bizarre collection in the conservatory. He then goes into the farmyard and defecates amongst the animals, collecting that sample too and popping it into a jar. Seemingly having enough of waiting, the farmer suddenly enters the sow's sty, completely naked, and tries to have intercourse with her only for her to slip away. After he perceives the sow to be more accepting of him, the farmer finally has sex with her, penetrating her as she sniffs around hay bales. Noticeably happier, the farmer continues cherishing the sow and doing his cyclical habits of chores and feces collecting. One day when he cannot find the sow, he finds her unwilling to move in the barn, nestled in the hay. Later he comes back inside to witness the sow giving birth to piglets, which he takes a loving fascination with. In celebration, he flies a kite outside while the piglets drink milk from their mother. He tries to interact with the piglets in fatherly ways, such as knitting blankets for them and feeding them milk from a bottle. He soon gets irritated, however, as the piglets seem to want to go back into the sow, causing him to accidentally break some of his faecal jars. He then tries to eat a meal of soup with the piglets, but they naturally respond by wandering all over the table, causing him to angrily reposition them constantly. Eventually, he snaps and soon the piglets are all found hung to death in the middle of the farmyard, with the farmer looking on in glee just before he takes an outdoor bath. The sow wakes up and runs around the farm, discovering the carcasses of her young. In distress, she runs from the yard and into the nearby grasslands, where she falls and drowns into a large body of mud. The farmer discovers her body, and utterly upset, he drags the corpse to the farmyard and buries her, trying to bury himself in utter depression at the events. Realising that he cannot die this way, he returns to the farmyard naked and muddy, defecating in the middle of the farmyard where the animals seem to have disappeared. He dons clothes again, puts the piglet corpses inside jars, and puts them amongst his collection. Descending further into madness, he collects more chicken faeces and his own, boils it in a large tin, and collecting the new substance into jars. He then disposes of the rest of his collection into a nearby brook before voraciously consuming all of the faecal mixture that he's cooked up. He then defecates again and straight up eats the turd from the receptacle, continuing to eat faecal matter for an inordinate amount of time. After vomiting profusely, the farmer then gives up hope completely and climbs a ladder that he's embedded into the mud solemnly to hang himself from it. After he does so, his body seemingly flies away just like a kite. Oh, 
Borre es ser con ti, borre es ser con ti, que tú puse con mí. Well, what can I say about this one? In contrast to the sheer flood of stuff to say about Sarlo, this was probably one that I'll struggle with the most, as there's really not much going on in this film. Like, at all. It's a Belgian film, with clearly arthouse pretensions, all filmed in black and white with no dialogue at all. With a synth-heavy experimental soundtrack, a desolate farming location and a whole menagerie of animals... The film is a character study of a very lonely, nameless farmer who seems to take a shine to a sow that trots innocently around the farmyard. The film explores his desires to have sex with the sow, though the actual result of the action is far from what he idyllically imagines. As the farmer is our only human character, the audience is pretty much focused on him the whole time, and Wedding Trough, or the pig-fucking movie as it's sometimes known, is seemingly a depiction of a seriously mentally ill farm worker. The whole film is in essence the world that he lives in, and quite frankly it's one of the dreariest, depressing spaces in cinema. Apart from the fact that the film's aesthetic of black and white automatically suggests a bleakness, the farm and surrounding area that we see is seemingly in an era that time forgot. The skies are overcast and constantly dreck, The farm is trapped in the past with primordial technology, a lack of basic resources, and very little in the way of homely comforts. The farmer has no other human companionship. He's literally alone with his large stock of ducks, geese, chickens, and the lone sow. As a result, he speaks no words during the entire film, as the animals make for ineffective conversationalists. So the audience also feels that intense sense of isolation, with only the quacks and snorting of the birds and pigs to keep us company. Even the farmer's repetitive schedule of ploughing arid fields and feeding the animals seems to serve actual little purpose. No one visits the farm to buy produce, nor is there enough personnel on the farm itself to gather a significant yield. The fact that there's only one sow rules out the idea of pig farming, but the farmer does on occasion slaughter chickens for plucking, but one would assume that this is here for his own food especially due to the rather corner-cutting methods in which he actually achieves this. Even his personal care is marred by a pervasive sense of depression. He's forced to use the latrine outside in the farmyard as though he was an animal himself. He almost always sleeps outdoors with no sign of any beds, and when he cooks meals, it's always a very thin, watery gruel that inspires little rustic warmth. His personal hygiene and routine is also stripped to the bare minimum with one single outfit and a primitive tin bath outside for when he needs to wash himself. In terms of leisure time, the farmer does very little in the way of normal activities, which is now where we'll go on to the other aspect of the film. Unsurprisingly, due to the oppressive and isolated world that he inhabits, the farmer is really mentally unwell. After every bowel movement, for example, he collects the specimen and encases it in a glass jar to put with a vast collection of faecal samples. While this obviously at face value is a very bizarre and obsessive thing to do, it also smacks of very old world values, reminiscent of collecting faeces to determine if you have an illness. This eventually transfers to the animal as well, where he gathers animal faeces for seemingly the same unfathomable reason. In addition to his dirty act of retaining his waste, the farmer is sometimes observed to put severed doll's heads onto pigeons in the area, in a seemingly desperate attempt to have company that vaguely resembles an animated human. 
It's quite childish and a little heartbreaking to see such an act, but the farmer's inclinations towards the sow quickly take up precedence over the other oddities that he displays. From the very beginning of the sow's introduction, it's very clear that the farmer is sexually aroused by the creature. He caresses its teats and undercarriage and obsessively follows it as it trots around the exercise yard, trying to carry on with its own mundane life. A few times the farmer attempts to have some form of sexual interaction, only to be naturally dismissed by the sow, who just simply wants to get on with her eating and relaxing in a pile of mud. Thankfully, it's not too graphic, but the scene in which he finally seems to be able to perform successfully with the pig is set up just like a sexual assault. The farmer has removed his clothes, and then all of a sudden, he just jumps out at the pig, struggling to keep a hold of it. He eventually settles down and allows the activity to happen, which then becomes a virtual nightmare when the sow gives birth. This one act of coitus apparently produces piglets in the sow, which, technically speaking, would be mutant piglets, but when they're born, they look remarkably unremarkable. Considering that they're supposed to be the melding of human and pig DNA, I find it a little suspicious that they look so ordinary. Obviously, budget constraints would prevent any piglet makeup or effects, but it also opens up an alternative interpretation, which we'll get to later. So, the farmer now has children, technically, and in one of the most normal scenes, he excitedly celebrates by flying a kite. He clearly enjoys himself and is noticeably happier than any other point in the film, the kite, in essence, representing himself getting ever closer to freedom from his dire circumstances. He begins fatherly duties immediately, by feeding the babies and trying to teach them to consume meals like him. Unfortunately, they're understandably more connected to their mother, and they seek to be with her as much as they can, which irks the farmer something rotten. After a particularly relatable incident in which the piglets refuse to eat their meal he's provided, and they try wandering the table, he suddenly snaps. But in a cruel act of spite, he kills them by hanging them in the exercise yard. In contrast to the joy of knowing that he's the father of these life forms, he's sharply and disturbingly cold towards the fate of his offspring, seemingly comfortable with the idea that he's murdered them. The sow, however, is distraught upon discovering her dead piglets, and squealing horrendously, she wanders from the yard and into the country, where she accidentally stumbles, off screen of course, into a muddy bog and drowns. This gets the farmer's attention and it becomes irretrievably broken, dragging her corpse into the fields and burying her underneath the infertile soil with himself to boot. It's a very bleak image, especially as you really realise just how barren the land looks. There's no plants growing, no sunshine, no real life either. Just a dead pig and a wretched farmer who pathetically tries to kill himself by submerging himself in the same grave. The guy's mental illness takes a steep drop into dangerous territory as he now seeks to kill himself with no sow to lust after. He fails in his attempt to bury himself alive, so he moves on to his precious collection of faecal matter. In a visceral flurry of activity, he smashes his painstaking collection and retrieves the shit, mixing it with water and urine and boiling the resultant substance into a large kettle. In another pathetic, though noticeably frenzied fashion, he consumes cup upon cup of this noxious turd tea to supposedly end his life. And this section goes on for quite a while, and just when you think that there can't be that much shit, more is disgustingly bubbling inside the teapot. When he does eventually run out, he then collects fresh chicken droppings and throws them into the brew for good measure. And then when the avian contributions run dry... He just then drops a fresh dumpling into the toilet tin and directly eats his fresh waste. 
As Richie and Eddie once found out in an episode of Bottom, you can't really die from eating bird poo, and the farmer eventually just pukes his guts out in reaction to his bizarre coprophagic rampage. Finally, as he realises he has to be a bit more conventional to achieve the possible, he quietly climbs a ladder that he's shoved into the earth and silently hangs himself from the apex. In a rather tragic mirror of his most happiest moment with the kite, his body seems to float off idyllically after he dies, floating away free at last. It's ultimately a very bleak story with an equally bleak protagonist. His actions, though on the outside, are pretty repulsive, such as being a zoophile with a penchant for collecting and drinking boiled effluvium, are actually, upon reflection, signs of a troubled young man who's clearly suffering the effects of a mental illness, with no support network, social interactions, or even basic access to essential resources. The world in which he inhabits is often thought of by contemporary viewers to be a post-apocalyptic one, with the sheer isolation, lack of modern amenities, and avant-garde presentation being indicators. I tend to disagree. I feel that the barren landscape in which this tale is set is much more indicative of a fractured, damaged mind. Considering that there's no dialogue and a very sedate pace to the film, it's thankfully a relatively short experience, so I found it easier to watch than perhaps I thought beforehand, or that it actually sounds. The pig sex itself is also not explicit or graphically depicted, and ends up just being a little uncomfortable really, rather than obscene, while the coprophagia scenes are a little more tough to swallow, no pun intended, simply because of the extended nature of the effluent tea-drinking scenes. While the scene of the piglets being hung clearly uses real dead piglets, and the sow being dragged from the mud is also clearly real and deceased, they were purchased prior to the film and were not slaughtered for the camera. But unfortunately the same can't be said for the unlucky chicken earlier in the film, who's killed for real. I imagine that combined with the zoophilia angle, this aspect of the animal cruelty was particularly the reason why this film ended up being so controversial. This is as extreme as the film gets, however. Other curious but relatively mild scenes involves turkeys actually having brief moments of coitus, chickens pecking and making noises, a lot of the sow sloppily and squelchingly eating slop and muck, and footage of a pig actually giving birth to a piglet. It's quite nice how the scene of the happy farmer flying a kite comes after this birth scene, as it's genuinely one of the warmest moments in this whole dreck tapestry of the film. While the animal cruelty deserves condemnation, it's not hard as an animal lover to not coo when there's actually little freshly born piglets who are drinking milk from their mother. Unsurprisingly, wedding trough will likely divide people. There's some who would find this a fascinating exercise in bizarre visions of a cold, callous, lonely life, and some who would see it as reprehensible trash of zero artistic merit. I'm still not sure how I feel about it. I feel it's certainly effective at showing a lonely world in which a disturbed man lives. 2006's Hungarian horror film Taxidermia has an opening act which is very similar to this film, with a very lonely soldier who has a repetitive mundane regimen near a farm who indulges in his barely repressed sexual urges, and he ends up impregnating his superior's wife, whom he hallucinates is actually a pig. I have a similar feeling about the scenes from this movie, where I think possibly he's not actually the father of this pig's piglets, but in fact has hallucinated the whole experience and just simply can't deal with the aftermath. And while I'm not sure I can see any other influences in other films, Wedding Trough certainly has something to say. 
I'm just not convinced that it's actually that effective, as it seems so hell-bent on being rather provocative and offensive, seemingly just for the hell of it. Like Cannibal Holocaust, its intentions are somewhat dubious and hard to fathom, but on the whole, it is a film that's worth seeing, especially for the fact that you can proclaim to your friends that you've seen the pig-fucking movie. It's really up to you, but it also wouldn't be a tragedy if you skipped this grotty little litter box either. Because of how minimal and obscure this film was, this section on the cast and crew is likely to be the shortest ever covered on Nasty Pasty. The sole actor, apart from the various menagerie of animals, was Dominique Jarny, who seemed to have appeared exclusively in experimental arthouse films, such as the 1975 short Greve Père and 1978's Images de Henri Stork. He also wrote and directed a Mondo-esque documentary in 1979 called Demore, which contains pretty graphic material related to deaths, but nowhere near as graphic as the more infamous Faces of Death. He'd also crop up in the 2009 documentary of Pigs and Men, which is all about the making of Wedding Trough. The film was directed by Thierry Zeno, a Belgian auteur who stayed quite a low-key filmmaker, who worked exclusively in documentaries and shorts. Wedding Trough was pretty much his only feature-length output, but he had a large hand in almost everything he did. Case in point, he also wrote, produced, edited, and did the cinematography on Wedding Trough, so this was a fairly personal work from him. He was assisted on the writing by John Kupferschmidt, who we mentioned not so long ago on Looker the Necrophagus, and also the main actor Dominique Jarny. The bizarre and strange synthy music in the film was done by Alain Pierre, who worked on 1972's Jailbait, Stronghold, and 2002's Gian. Zeno was also assisted in the directing by a couple of people, one of which is Jean-Paul Ferbus, who worked on the documentary De More, and 1987's Mascara. But lastly, there was Anne West, whose only other credit of note is the 1989 film Cold Front. And that's it for Wedding Trough. It's such an obscure piece of film that the crew were not exactly widespread in their artistic endeavours. Wedding Trough is certainly one of the most obscure films that I've ever had to track down, as the film had such dire distribution, even for back in the 1970s. In fact, it never received an official theatrical exhibition anywhere in the world, being relegated solely for film festivals and special screenings. It had a rather bitter reception, though, from most places, the worst of which was Australia, who, against normal rules, placed pressure on the Perth International Film Festival to pull the film from showing. While an initial ban was overturned, allowing the film to play for a short time, a fresh ban was introduced the following year, and the film has never been released there ever since. Such is the film's obscurity that it hasn't surfaced at all in the UK, and while once it was thought to be a lost film due to the scarce nature of any prints floating around, there are now only two versions that exist on DVD today, one from Germany and the other from Sweden. Modern releases are bundled with a documentary as well, entitled Of Pigs and Men, which explores the making of the film with the original actor, director and the assorted crew members. In fact, it's probably more interesting than the actual film itself. If you're a collector of bizarre films, this would certainly pique your interest, though it would be remiss of me to say that this film would suit everyone's taste, because it simply won't.
Well, guys, that concludes the Nasty Pasty podcast. It's been an emotional ride. Never did I think that after having this crazy idea almost two years ago, that it would bear this much fruit. With 71 main episodes and 18 bonuses, I've pushed out 89 episodes covering over 150 films. It's been tough going sometimes. Some of the films I've watched will stay with me forever. Others, less so. And yes, Panic, I'm looking at you. I got to meet and interview the wonderful Caroline Monroe. I got to speak to a personal hero of mine, Dr. Callum Waddle, a whole bunch of times. I did some collaborations with him in 88 Films. And most of all, I got to meet a whole bunch of people who've been with Nasty Pasty almost as long as I have. Before I start choking up, though, I'll have to say my congrats and credits to where it's due. So, firstly, I'd like to personally thank Tom Elliott and Chris Clayton from The Strange and Deadly Show. They do the Twilight Zone podcast and Lost in the Omniverse as well between them. Listening to them cover the Section 3 Video Nasties list was an utter joy for me, and it was their connection and camaraderie that convinced me that I could do it myself. Tom has also helped me out from the very beginning with the whole podcasting setup, the website where it's hosted, and all manner of technical stuff involved, which has been nothing short of invaluable. Of course, I'll still be developing the website and stuff in future for other projects, so that won't end, fortunately. But I just wanted to say a huge thank you to both of you for being my inspiration. Another round of thanks, though, goes to Christopher Brown, who done the Video Nasties podcast that, by today, covers the Section 3 list as well. He's an inspiration too as he writes solo and he's proved that being a one-man band is absolutely achievable and doable with success. So thank you very much for that as well, Chris. And thanks to you who's been listening too. Some of you have been listening to Nasty Pasty from the very beginning and some much later, but regardless, it's all been worthwhile just to get to know some of you and chat about horror films as in real life I actually don't have that many friends who are into the same kind of grime that I'm into. And while this list isn't exhaustive, I offer hearty thanks to Danny Davis, Smodge, Chris Ward, Kristin Hawes, Gore Blimey, Daniel Budnick, Amanda Reyes, Rob's Lib, Hockety Punctus, Slasher Trash, Victor Gamboa, Paul Chandler, Marshall Julius, Fred Anderson, Bevan Shortridge, Will Dunn, Callum Waddle, Freddie Fennick, Becky, Andrew Grover, Wicket, Tristan Lofting, Jeff Oates, Andrews 198205, Vipco Book, Taylor, John Larkin, Jim Moon, Jonathan Butler, Mark Armstrong, Rachel Nisbet, Matthew Paul Bufton, Stephen Moore, Barverlamp, Ash Lloyden, Ruggerlad, Ian Davis, Phil Evans, Nick Chapman, Emmy Costa, and many, many more. I'm sorry if I couldn't mention you, there's just far too much of you out there. You've all been fab, and I want to thank you all for the retweets, the shares, and participation that you've all offered. As for the future of Nasty Pasty, there'll still be some reissues of old episodes that I'll float around and continue to plug, and there'll be that bonus episode on the black belly of the tarantula that will come out at a random time in the next few months. Sorry about the vague nature of this, but there's also the possibility of me appearing on other podcasts, if anyone wants me, obviously. But apart from the bonus Giallo episode, I won't be producing any new Nasty Pasty content, I'm afraid. But I can guarantee that there will be another few giveaways in the future with new Video Nasty titles on DVD. Instead, I'm focusing on my book project that I started many years ago and that I've basically been neglecting. 
Attack of the Video Nasties is going to be the first part of a three-book collection covering the Video Nasty films and all the other associated films with a focus on the horror genres, the trivia and what exactly the UK's reaction to the contents of those films have been and for what reason. Parts 2 and 3 will be similar to the Nasties Pasties content and that they'll cover both Video Nasty era films that escaped prosecution for various reasons. In total, all three books will cover 731 films, with the first volume alone covering 175 films. This includes the full 72 Video Nasties, the 82 Section 3 Nasty films, and 21 additional films that were seized by the police forces which were on their personal lists. It's an absolutely mammoth undertaking, but I'm pretty passionate about going through with it, as the fire really hasn't fizzled out yet. Future updates on the book will be coming through the Nasty Pasty accounts as well, and I'll also retweet any video Nasty-related news and such and so forth. That's pretty much the plan for the future, guys and gals, so I want to thank everyone for making the journey so worthwhile. Before the tears start flowing properly, I'm just going to leave it there. This guy, Andy Roberts, is now going to enjoy a two-week pampering session where I do precisely bugger all. Goodbye for the last time, folks, and thank you all from the bottom of my heart for listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast. It's been a pleasure.